Hey, what's up, podcast? Hope you guys are having a great week. This week, I have a very special guest, Terry Sidoric. He is the CEO of Chaotix here in Calgary. They use the power of crowdsourcing tech to help the world's leading companies like PNG, IBM, KPMG, American Airlines, Virgin, and much more. On the podcast, we talk about bouncing back from failure, the parallels between sports and business when building your team, selling your product or services into a company, and much, much more. Remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. You get awesome local leaders and entrepreneur stories each week, jam-packed with their unique insights. Leave me feedback at joe at codessa.io on some of the stories or questions you want to hear. I read them all. Now to the podcast. Hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Terry. Appreciate it. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, pleasure to have you on. Um, so yeah, let's jump right into it. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your background, your origin story, and how you are where you are today. Yeah, no problem for sure. Well, um, you know, I could go back quite a long ways, but I guess I'll, I'll kind of cut it off and say that uh, you know I grew up in uh, I grew up in eastern Canada and uh, moved out west uh, to Sherwood Park, just outside Edmonton, um, with a family. My dad took a transfer west. Uh, I, I attended uh, mechanical engineering at the U of A, and so completed that. I ended up working in the energy sector for about 18 months. I experienced a, a downturn, as, as happens in the industry, and that was enough for me to kind of, I guess, reflect back on whether long-term I wanted to remain in that industry. So I took the opportunity to return for my MBA, and came out of that and joined uh, Nortel uh, in a program which was called uh, the Financial Leadership Development Program. And, my interest and intrigue there was the opportunity to spend um, in the program, spend a number of, um, I guess, uh, training initiatives in various uh, geographies with Nortel across North America. And so uh, five years experiencing all aspects of the financial function in Nortel and then jumped across into product management. Uh, and I consider both finance and product management to be foundational roots to where I ultimately ended up. So. Um, you know, that's kind of a, a background and then I had the opportunity to jump into the startup world, uh, entrepreneurship, if you will, in uh, 97 out of Nortel, which is, uh, as I was reflecting back for this discussion, uh, some 36 years ago. And so, uh, sorry, 30, I was 36 at the time. So, um, so 23 years ago. And so it, uh, it's been an interesting ride. Have you felt, uh, during your crazy, uh, startup transition? Um, you know, it's something that um, I don't, I don't, I was trying to recall, and I've had this conversation over the years, what was this, you know, the turning point that led me to, to look at early stage or startups? And I, and I think ultimately, it was the MBA program. I mean, you know, the case studies, the various things you're introduced to, kind of created this bug that said that at some point, wouldn't it be fascinating to be involved and in, kind of run your own company? And, um, you know, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, I spent 10 years inside Nortel before getting that opportunity, but it was something that presented itself. It was somewhat of a logical shift in that I took what I had through the experience at Nortel and we actually spun out um, uh, an initiative or a technology thrust that I was working at inside of Nortel. And then uh, we grew a business around there. So, um, you know, the classic elements that you hear about is that, uh, 
you know, you're not dealing with the, uh, the bureaucracies and the politics inside of an enterprise, you know, what you decide in the morning, you can see the impact by the afternoon, afternoon, those things were all compelling to me and, and arguably in, uh, in reflection, uh, very much a part of, uh, you know, the everyday life of a, of a early stage or startup company. Do you find that you wear many hats in your role? Uh, totally. And, you know, I think, uh, I think that's part of the attraction and, you know, I think what does it take to be successful, uh, inside an organization or a startup organization is, is the breadth of understanding in terms of the functional aspects to be successful. Um, where I think I've really, really found, um, uh, an ability to contribute is on the commercialization stage. So, you know, I've said uh, uh, I kind of fall into the entrepreneur bucket, but I'm not the idea person. I'm the execution person. I'm the person that comes along when someone wants to go through the commercialization stage. And so understanding, you know, at what points in the, in the organizations, uh, organization's growth do you start to look at formality and processes? At what point do you bring in different functions in a formal way? And so the appreciation of all those elements and how they work together and when they're needed is definitely an asset that uh, has come through experience, but also one that I, you know, I contribute in every day as I get involved in the different companies I've been uh, um, fortunate to, to get tied into. So you have some experience in, in startup, startup plans and also um, being in the, like you were saying, bureaucratic, uh, large infrastructure of a company. Yeah. Um, but what, what's one thing you wish uh, you would have known when you first began your career? Um, yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I guess one of the things, depending on what, you know, at what stage you look at, um, I, I guess in the early stage when I was inside the enterprise and then in the latter stage, as I'm selling or working into the enterprise, um, the appreciation of, of organizational structure, um, you know, it was a course I took in my MBA program. It's probably the one I spent the least amount of, uh, time focused on, had minimal interest, couldn't understand why it was relevant. Um, but arguably over the long run, it was probably the most important learnings uh, uh, of, of that MBA program. And, you know, I reflect back on that course often relevant to what are the things that you have to pay attention to. Ultimately, what are the drivers of the individuals that you're selling into in an organization? You know, what are they motivated by? In the end, you know, you're selling to a person, not a company. Uh, that person has their own motivations. Are they looking to climb the ladder? Are they going to be there in the long run? What's the sales cycle when you get to the end? Are they still the one that, that's going to make the decision? And so these aspects of corporate structure become important, as do culture and some of the other elements that uh, you'll find over time uh, play a role in how successful you can be as, a, as an early stage organization or any organization selling a product or a service into another company. Was there a big challenge or even that maybe even a failure um, that, and what did you learn from it during your career? Yeah, uh, many, many challenges, many failures. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting now is failures are being recognized as, as, uh, as the ways to gain experience. And, you know, it's, it's the scenario of making sure that you don't repeat a failure that ultimately can contribute to excess and, and gives you the experience. You know, I, I coach hockey um, at a, an elite level. And one of the things I, I strive and, and communicate to the kids is that, you know, unless you're failing, you're not pushing the boundary because you're, you're basically um, looking at things outside of, of your current capabilities and understanding where that line is, is something that you're going to learn from. 
And so it's no different in business. If you're pushing the edge, you're bound to fail. How quickly you can recover, how quickly you can adapt is going to be ultimately what, you know, what contributes to success down the road. And, you know, and I can say from my personal experiences, every one of the failures I've been involved with, um, and there have been some, some big ones relative to, you know, early stage, trying to create a company, trying to commit, create commercial viability have contributed to a learning. And so, you know, taking that from one um, uh, opportunity to the next becomes what contributes to ultimately success. And that's why, you know, that's why you see over and over again that, you know, the capital guys, the venture capitalists will bet on the teams um, that have they've had success with because those folks understand how to execute. Uh, they know that failure is a part of what you're going to do, how you adapt to it, how you respond to it. Those are ultimately the ones that are going to um, deliver success in the long term. So it's, it's, it's part of the growth. And, you know, what's interesting now is, is as I mentioned at the start, was it's being celebrated, you know, um, uh, in, in sort of the early stage technology sector as, you know, things that you can learn from. So uh, at one point, people used to sort of hide behind the failures, embarrassed that you weren't able to be successful. But people recognize now that it, there are so many dynamics to, to driving a business to success that, you know, you, you can control some and how you respond and do that is important, but some, some of the other elements you can't. And therefore, again, failure is something that is real in the early stage. And I, I can't, forget, I can't remember the statistics, but you know, there, it's a very high percentage of companies that start and are around after the five-year mark because of these uncertainties and challenges and, you know, and, and inexperience, et cetera. So the more you have, the more you can contribute to being successful over the long run. Would you say resilience is a part of that uh, DNA? No question. I mean, if you don't have resilience uh, as a startup person, then, you know, you're, you're just not going to be successful. And the resilience comes in a number of ways. I mean, number one is that there's roller coaster ride. There's as many highs as there is lows. And so your ability to ride through those becomes extremely important. And so resilience in that aspect. Um, secondly, everyone has an opinion on why you will or will not be successful or what you should or shouldn't do. And so your ability to uh, appropriately manage that input, uh, which again, I think speaks to resilience becomes extremely important. I think, you know, again, uh, it's often a hindsight argument, but there, you know, the, the, a number of companies that we reflect on or a number of entrepreneurs that you look to who have created these monumental changes in the way we do things uh, can tell stories about, um, you know, how they were basically laughed out of a room with their idea or whatever. And so without that resilience uh, as a character trait, um, you know, we wouldn't have recognized some of the things that we have today and take for granted. So it's, it's a big part of being uh, successful for uh, someone involved in the, in the uncertainties of an early stage company. Would you say resilience is, uh, like you said, a character trait, but do you think that's something that you learn or do you think it's uh, almost DNA like inherently in you? That's a good question. I think there's an aspect of learning, uh, learning of resilience, because, um, you know, ultimately when, you know, you're faced with those first uh, uncertainties and someone throws doubt into the path that you're on, how you treat that um, will ultimately affect, you know, sort of your next move or how you how you respond. But as you go through, um, I think, you know, you'll recognize success and failure. And in hindsight, you'll be able to reflect back and in terms of what your perception was at a point in time ahead of when it actually happened. And therefore, you will continue to develop your view um, of what was right or wrong and therefore build up on that resilience. So I think you can learn it, but there's no question. Um, and, you know, again, you look at some of these um, opportunities that have become successful. 
out of the valley or the you know the stories that we read about and uh you know early on uh you know they they there were 49 different meetings with a vc the 50th one said yes well how do you possibly get through 49 meetings of being told no 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 without resilience and so i think there's an aspect of that that comes with um, someone with a strong belief in a path they want to go and therefore it's it's somewhat in the dna now i can tell you also at the same time that there are a lot of um uh you know, very, very strong-willed individuals that just won't let go of their idea. So as much as it can benefit you towards the path of success, you can see a lot of folks that crash and burn because they're just not willing to accept the fact that maybe this wasn't a great idea. Maybe this really isn't a business of which to drive forward on. Right. It almost seems like a fine line, like uh, between uh, resilience and also maybe delusional. <laughs> so oh, um... <laughs> I mean, Think about some of the stuff we've seen in the past. And, and, and I can reflect on it based on a timeline. And I remember, you know, when I first got into this sort of startup world, we, we created an attractive capital based on an idea, right? I mean, that's unheard of today. You cannot great, um, raise money to put together a plan of which to go to market. So the bet there was there was enough of a, a marketplace. In, in this case, it was electronic cash. My first startup was company called Odyssey Technologies. I was one of four founders. Um, the whole concept there was basically a, a, a venture capitalist company out of Canada, Ventures West, who aren't around any longer or anymore. And, um, you know, they, they provided us seed funding to put together a plan and build a team and then followed on with a Series A. Today, that's just not possible. And so when you reflect over time, how things have changed, I, I, I look back at the, you know, the Airbnbs or the, anybody involved in this whole idea of, of um, shared economy, Airbnb, Airbnb or Uber, et cetera. And imagine those early discussions, you know, in a, in a VC's room, I'm, I'm going to build the biggest hoteling brand in the world and I'm not going to own one piece of real estate. I mean, how does one comprehend that in the early stages? But look what they've done. They, you know, that that belief, that understanding has changed the way we look at, you know, hoteling, if you will, and obviously created an economy around allowing us to share unused capital from a personal perspective into uh, a business and a, and a commerce cycle. So it, it's quite interesting, and at the same time, you know, um, a, an opportunity that was presented because someone had an idea, an idea that was unheard of and perhaps early on was viewed to be not possible, but that in itself changed how we looked at things. And so Uber, Lyft, WeWork, all these different, you know, well-known brands in the sharing economy, um, you know, they, they all kind of came sort of from that same perspective. So it, it's interesting in how things change with time. Oh, yeah, that's great insight, Terry. Um, besides for resilience, I know we spent a lot of time on resilience, but yeah. is there any other... Uh, maybe advice you'd give somebody uh, wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Um, you know, I think, you know, resilience and persistence was the ones that kind of came to mind to me. Um, you know, you have to have a belief. At the end of the day, you know, you, you've got to have thick skin and a belief that what you're doing um, is is able to drive that passion and commitment that it takes. I mean, you know, the scenario of working extremely long hours, uh, seven days a week uh, in the early days is very much a part of early stage startup life. Um, and so it takes that kind of devotion, if you will, to a belief or an idea to have success. Um, there's a lot of heavy lifting in the early days, and it's usually done with 
um, in a scenario or an environment where you're under-resourced, uh, under-resourced from a capital perspective, from a support perspective, and a lot of times from a time perspective. I think one of the key things that I would reflect on is that, um, and, and something that doesn't get enough, uh, I think, uh, notoriety in, this, in, the, in the journey for success is timing. For me, timing is everything, especially when you're at the front edge front edge of new technology, new ideas, timing becomes just such an important aspect. And so, you know, there's things around that you can control and things you can't. And if you don't hit it, then, you know, you you likely aren't going to survive and you're likely not going to be successful. I can count easily, you know, a dozen companies that I saw were just ahead of their time and they weren't able to survive that gap between when they thought the idea was going to happen and when it actually did happen. And that, that comes from a result that as much as we have, um, you know, new technologies, new ideas, um, products, services, whatever, ultimately you're selling into people and people take time to change. And so understanding that relative to your business is important. So timing would be the other thing that I would add into that uh, discussion. Kind of stepping back into uh, your career, what's been the best resources that's helped you along the way? There's probably a lot here, and, and I think it's it, it probably speaks a little bit more about who I am versus anything else. Um, you know, number one is um, again I'll, I'll probably tie in some of my sort of sports background. I, I you know I played a lot of hockey in the early days, and um, I believe when I you know kind of saw a movement towards coaching and business, it's just logically making sense. We have coaches and in, in sports to provide a means by which we can get better at performing, you know, whether it's an individual sport or a team sport. And to me, you know, when you think about it, business is no different. And so having a coach is something um, that I think becomes, is, is mainstay now. I mean, a lot of C-level individuals have coaches and it's something that they can um, use to their benefit to become better at what they're doing. Um, so I think that's something. Secondly is a mentor. Um, at the end of the day, you know, throughout your career, having someone outside of your day-to-day kind of uh, interaction uh, that you can lean on for mentorship, I think is something very important. So as a, um, you know, as a young person entering the workforce, someone that is fulfilling a role that ultimately you could see yourself in, you know, reaching out to them for um, being a mentor is something that I think is very valuable. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've uh, consistently communicated is the number of people that you probably look to and say, gee, wouldn't it be great to have a conversation with that individual? Bottom line is if you reach out and say, hey, I'm interested to understand how you got to where you are. I'm interested to understand the role that you're in today. You know, can I grab a coffee for 15 or 30 minutes and just and just kind of talk about what that experience is like? The network that I have, I, I can't think of an individual that wouldn't step into that. And today more so than ever, um, the ability to do it virtually, such that the interrupt cost, uh, physically having to you know pick up, move to a coffee shop or whatever, um, it's it's gone away. And furthermore, if it was a situation where you want to meet in person, make it easy for the individual. And I can't again think of somebody that wouldn't say for sure. And I think that's that's something that you could uh, definitely take advantage of. The last thing, um, or the last two things I'll mention, um, books. Um, you know, I think uh, as a resource. The number of business books out there uh, that you can rely on, that you can quickly read through um, is, is something that I, I've done uh, throughout my career. It's spits and spurts in terms of when I decide to uh, read in, but I've done a lot over the last bit, just given the, 
um, more time I have, uh, audio books on the drive, things like that. And then lastly, the internet. I mean, the internet has just changed everything. So the ability to um, basically reach out and, you know, as they say, Google it to get some insights is something that I rely on uh, all the time. And so the combination of those two and understanding or of those and understanding when to use them is something that I think that anybody uh, in any role should be using um, as a resource base uh, to further their understanding and development. Um, has there been anything uh, recently that you've read in terms of uh, any good books or even uh, audio books as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a couple things that um, you know I kind of anticipated you might you might ask this sort of a question. So um, there's been a couple of things of late, and, and you know I was thinking how do I segue into discussion again back to the sports thing. Um, I of late I've been very intrigued to understand you know, why the high performing athletes are able to reach that level of performance and timely. Um, first of all, I, I grabbed the book uh, that someone uh, recommended to me called Relentless, uh, From Good to Great to Unstoppable by Tim Grover. And Tim Grover was a person that um, provided one-on-one -on -one coaching for uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and a number of other high performing basketball players. And I read that book and it was it was extremely inspiring in terms of the mental side of the game, which I think is important in business. In, it's as important in business as it is in sports. And then you know, most recently, uh, I watched the 10 part series of Last Dance with, My, Last Dance with Michael Jordan. And I, I just found that that was extremely inspirational to see what it took to rise above the best of the best and see you know, uh, that recognition from his peer group and then understanding how he did it. I mean, it's just phenomenal to me. So that's one aspect. Um, similarly, I've read um, uh, a recent book um, that kind of tied into the experience I had was, um, it brought came to my attention, it's called Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and fall of Blackberry. Um, it was uh, co-authored by Jackie McNish and, and Sean Silcock. Sean is a tech writer for the Globe and Mail someone that I've read various pieces on over the years. And so I was intrigued. But what was interesting there was um, in my career, um, the second organization I was with, um, we went through the classic up and down, um, you know, kind of roller coaster rise of a startup. Um, and we had tried to sell our graphics based technology into BlackBerry RIM for months. And um, we weren't successful. And then there was a sort of a, a happenstance opportunity where we were introduced at the very senior level, um, um, Mike Lazaridis ultimately, um, around what we were doing. I mean, we were in Toronto at that point, uh, you know, RIM was in Waterloo and um, unheard of, to be honest, uh, 30 days after introduction uh, at the C level, uh, we were a part of that organization. So due diligence, acquisition, paperwork, et cetera, was all accomplished within 30 days. And, you know, that ride, that experience, um, and that integration uh, was a phenomenal learning for me. But what was fascinating about the book um, was the inside story of RIM and what contributed to the success and then ultimately the failure. Our acquisition by RIM was one of the first, if not the first they did. And it was in the very, very early days uh, of that organization, 2002. And as the COO of, of the company called Plasmic, 
I went through and saw a bunch of experiences that I, I honestly questioned, how is this possible? How is this company being as successful as they are? And just, you know, it just, it just questioned a lot of things of what I was kind of running into. And so to read it again in the book years later about what was seen as both the reasons for success and failure, it just reassured me that I had a good grasp on what we were doing because some of the things that I just thought didn't make sense were pointed out in the book as being not making sense. And so it was a great learning and reaffirmation of me as a business person to understand what's important to focus on and, and ultimately what are the, you know, what are the elements that become part of the success story for an organization. So that was fascinating. I'm a big sports junkie and I feel um, there's lots of parallels between uh, sports and business, but I'm curious to know um, your insight on what parallels you see from uh, your career in life and business. Well, yeah, you know, one of the things I ran across um, interesting study is uh, it shows that um, there are a lot of sports um, or I guess individuals that had a start in sports at, we'll, we'll call it, say, at a higher level. So, you know, university, college, whatever that is, that have gone on to have successful um, business careers. And I think it's an appreciation of the team aspect of sports. And I mean, business in the end is a team sport. It's about understanding roles, responsibilities, and, and how um, the collection of individuals contribute to the success of the one, you know, the company. And that's, that's, that's to me is exactly what sports is. And so appreciating what it's like to be a good team player, um, appreciating you have a role and responsibility and accountability in sports as you would in business or business as you would in sports. And those to me are analogies that run parallel um, in, you know, whether you're talking sports or you're talking business. And so uh, that's to me the obvious one. I, I look back to my sporting, you know, career, my sporting experience and how it's helped. And, uh, you know, probably the biggest thing is just the fact that it takes a team to be successful in sports. Like, again, I, I should, I should, caveat that and say, obviously I'm coming from a team oriented sports background versus an individual. But even if you then couple it back to individuals, the idea that, you know, you have to have self-motivation to continue to develop, to continue to drive. And so it links back to all the things that we've previously just talked about here as to what's important to be successful. Again, understanding your definition of success, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a path where you sell a business or you create a multi-million dollar conglomerate success has a different definition for everybody but appreciating what it takes to get there and i think sports as a driver for winning is ultimately a lot of the characteristics you want to have in your team um, as you drive it and look to to grow your business so kind of back into uh, startup land um what's one common myth about your profession or even uh industry that uh, you wish you'd want to debunk um, you know, yeah, um, great question. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I, I would say I wouldn't maybe necessarily, well, maybe it's debunk, but certainly sort of throw caution is that, you know, the number of folks that are getting into entrepreneurship and, you know, the number of schools that are offering entrepreneurship at programs, I think is fabulous. I mean, it's teaching you some of the basics uh, and understanding of the elements that we've talked about here and, you know, what are the things consideration. So it gives you the breadth that I think is so important. Um, for success, regardless of whether you're in the enterprise or you're running your own ship. So that that's something for me that I think is very valuable. But at the same time, I think that media has really a kind of created this sense of a notoriety um, and, um, you know, um, what do you want to call it? Uh, uh, 
notoriety and successes that are truly outliers. So if we look at, you know, the, the companies that are brand aware and we know of that have had massive rises and perhaps massive fails, those are the outliers. There are thousands of companies in between. And so I think that um, it's, it's, it, it has to be understood in context to what it is to be, again, back to being successful. I think the, you know, the greatest kind of quote or the quote that I go back to all the time is that, you know, the 10 or 15 year overnight success. There are the first 80% of that, you know, whether it be eight years or 12 years where you're just grinding it out. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reasons, things you've done or the market has subsequently reached a point that you have that inflection and boom, you, you, you realize that success. And that's what gets popularized in the media. And that's what people perceive as entrepreneurship. Um, it, it's where you ultimately maybe want to get to, but there are a lot of trials, tribulations, ups and downs, roller coaster ride between that kind of view of entrepreneurship and success versus what most of us experience on a day-to-day basis. So that would be the one thing I would caution folks about understanding how hard it is, how much you have to um, believe in what you're doing, and then that resilience and persistence that we talked about earlier are key elements. And it's a, it's a hard grind with some heavy lifting in the front end. I want to just echo that as well. Um, that's one of actually the key reasons why I started the podcast is that just the backstory of the 15-year overnight success. Like, like you're saying in the media, uh, you always you hear about the Instagrams selling for a billion dollars after a year. But there's so many, like, like you're saying, thousands of companies in between. So yeah, that's absolutely correct. Well, yeah, if you you go back and look at the history of Microsoft, which we all view as being this sort of rocket ship, but if you look at the graph of sort of the I'll call it the revenue curve, earnings curve, whatever, there were numerous years where it was very very small, and then boom, it reached an inflection, took off. The the story I just read about BlackBerry and RIM, obviously, you know, our involvement with them through through the company I was with, Plasmic, was very much at the early part of that inflection, but the book goes back years before that. Um, where they were faced with times where they were considering shutting things down. That gets lost, you know, in the, in the end. But, you know, the book brought it out, which was fabulous, I thought. So there was probably, I think if I recall, there was at least eight, maybe nine, ten years um, where Mike Lazaridis was kind of doing that consulting, uh, you know, early technology work that ultimately became the BlackBerry and the market success that it did. So it speaks to timing. It speaks to the path that he had to go on. And that is probably the part that most don't recognize um, or have a visibility into as a result of, you know, when the media picked it up, when the media kind of started to tell the story here in Canada as a technology success. So you're right. There's so much more behind the scenes. Absolutely. Yeah. Just a few more questions here on the podcast. Uh, I'm just curious as to what are you, curious about right now it could be personal um, or professionally yeah um you, you know a, a number of things obviously with the business i'm involved with today chaotix um where community is the crux of what we're doing the ability to have an online community for a brand you know whether it be a customer-based community uh an internal employee community etc um my interest right now is peaked around this whole concept um, of online community, you know, that, in fact, that's, you know, what we do here at Curix, as I mentioned, um, I think, you know, community is something that is a core of so many parts of our life, you know, whether it's the community of family, the community of your neighborhood. So the geography, the geographical aspect, um, you know, whether it's an interest group, et cetera. So community has always been something that has been a part and inherent in sort of the human nature. 
And we're at Curetix looking to kind of use technology, um, both from an ability to deliver, but also in terms of, you know, how we as a society now interact um, to see whether there's a play for that um, in, in the world and how it will grow. And, you know, realistically right now with what we're going through in the pandemic, um, it's, it's a focus that is interesting to watch in terms of uh, we have companies that never thought they could work from home or never even considered it were forced to. And now you're hearing conversations around how some of these people are saying, well, you know, this could be our new future. I think it was uh, both, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, Twitter announced that, uh, you know, they'll never go back to a formal office. Uh, they announced that earlier this week. So community and online presence is, is obviously curious because it's at the core of what we're doing. And we believe that the, the timing right now is, 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 again, very interesting for the company. And I'll also mention that the company that's been around for 10 years. So, again, um, you know, uh, probably ahead of its time, but also now looking at a, an opportunity where we're seeing more and more interest around this aspect of online communities and how it can be appreciated uh, by the consumer and uh, beneficial to the brand. So that's something for me that's uh, uh, of interest. And then, you know, Coupled with that is just this whole concept of Zoom fatigue, they call it, or just this online connecting, which obviously is um, connected to what I just talked about. So how, how will we as a society grow, adapt and, and change relative to our, our current uh, requirements and some of the things that we've been forced into as a result of this pandemic that you know has obviously impacted the world, the globe. So that's something that uh, we're paying a lot of attention to here at work. Um, is there anything new uh, happening at Chaordix that we can share? Um, well, we, we've uh, you know we've launched a number of interesting communities. We've got uh, more interest of late. Um, we continue to evolve product from a you know from a technology perspective. So some of the things that you know we're looking at is uh, a longer term is kind of the idea of uh, you know artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, you know, ultimately we're collecting a lot of information on the community and its members. Um, and so we're looking to understand how that can be beneficial to the brands that we're working with today. So how has Calgary changed uh, from when you first started to uh, to right now? Um, yeah, great question. Calgary to me, you know, having come from the east and uh, relocated first to Edmonton and down to Calgary, I, I love this city. I think the city just from a personal perspective just offers so much, you know, whether whether you're an outdoors person, uh, whether you're an arts person. I think there's just as a Canadian um city it's, it's got a great balance uh, for everyone and you know as a person who's raised a family here uh, love the place having said that we are clearly going through some challenges based on uh, you know an economy that was largely based on um, uh, a carbon-based initiatives or a carbon-based energy and so understanding that the world is changing and looking at things that uh, are going to contribute to the diversification so um, I think it's um, a challenging time, but I also think, you know, it's an opportunity for the city, uh, you know, back to kind of the sports analogy. It, it's a little frustrating right now to be a part of a, a, a geography uh, that I'm not sure is uh, being treated uh, as I would view it needs to be. You know, I think we, uh, we all play for the same team here, the Canadian team. Um, but I don't see that, uh, you know, we're all being treated equally as part of that team. And so when you get into the politics, and I'm not going to hear the bureaucracy and politics that we're experiencing across the country, it's, it's a little bit disappointing that we're at least not all pulling in the same direction. Um, so that's something I think needs to change. And I think that, you know, where we can, uh, both the city and the province are taking initiatives to assist in that diversification. So for technology, 
uh, it's an interesting time. Um, or by no means uh, through some of the challenges, uh, you know, we have to continue to get better alignment and support out of government. And you know, involved in a bunch of initiatives here locally that are, are working towards that. And hopefully we can uh, kind of bring things together to help the economy locally diversify. So that's probably been the biggest change I've seen. Right. No, and diversification is, is key. Um, I mean, I'm curious to get your thoughts and insights on how, uh, I guess, your thoughts on the Calgary startup community. It's, um, you know, it's very much in its infancy. Um, you know, one of the things we, we kind of talked about before, and I alluded to this, uh, it, it, to me, it speaks to the importance of having um, foundational companies. And, you know, I think at one time Calgary did, and, and Nortel was one of those, for example. But if you look at the analogy of a mall, you have your anchor tenants, you know, that typically sit at one end or the other of the mall. And those are the people, those are, those are the companies that attract or sorry, the businesses that attract the shoppers that ultimately then spill over to some of the smaller organizations inside the mall. Well, an ecosystem for technology is no different. If you look to the Valley, it's the, you know, the, the large companies, the Sun Microsystems, the Apples, the Cisco's that ultimately um, are at the foundation and then subsequently drive the spin-offs, people leaving with ideas, et cetera. So the ecosystem needs that. And so right now, you know, we're missing some of those pieces or are at the early stages. One of them is the anchor tenants. You know, we started to see the Benavides, the Soliums, um, and these likes that are, are having successes. Um, the second piece is capital. We have to get some more mature capital locally uh, and larger capital to start to get closer to the models that we're seeing. Um, you know, Silicon Valley is at the paramount, but we're seeing in Canada at both uh, Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. And we probably, as a, a group, sit behind all of those today. So that's going to be key for us today uh, for the future as well. So it's, you know, the anchor tenants, the large companies that are having success. It's the capital to fuel the early stage and the growth of companies that uh, start to show promise. Um, all part of the ecosystem to uh, flourish and create more diversity here locally. Uh, what's one question uh, that you never get asked that you wish you would be asked? You know, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? Uh, I think that's the one. And I think, you know, that comes from, I, I've asked this, obviously, I've got uh, two two children that have gone through, uh, uh, this is, you know, high school and on to careers and, um, you know, they're, they're adults. And the question of, well, why did they end up doing what they're doing? Or why did I end up doing what I'm doing? And, and I think that, um, you know, it's a, a, a reality of just the influences that we have growing up, whether it's the parents, the family, the neighborhood. And these are ultimately biases and influences that, you know, that probably contribute to the, the decisions we make for career. And the question I've often asked is, you know, how many, how many musicians are out there that have never played an instrument because they just never had the opportunity, but they, they could have, a, you know, an unfound uh, skill or, or knack for doing something. They've just never been exposed to it. So I think as a parent and ultimately, you know, as a high school, we need to expose uh, our early adults to some of these different options that they might have in front of them to allow them to end up somewhere that they have a passion for versus they just ended up. I, I don't know how many people I can tell you. And I'm a perfect example. Why, why did I end up in engineering? Because my dad was an engineer. I just thought that was you know, made sense. Um, and, you know, I was intrigued by it, but if I was to do it all over again, I, you know, I never really practiced engineering. It was a foundational skill set that I attributed to that educational process that I apply day to day, just, uh, you know, problem solving, et cetera. But my interests since then have been more towards business and, and more recently towards 
um, performance psychology. I find it fascinating. And, and if I was to do it again, I think I, I'd take the path of uh, performance psychology and work with um, business leaders as well as sports leaders in, in terms of what makes them perform the way they can. Right. Well, that's, that's really fascinating. <laughs> uh, no, you, you've been an awesome guest on the podcast. Where can our listeners connect with you online? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on all the social platforms. I tend to use LinkedIn and Twitter to be have more of a business focus and then the other ones for more personal interests, etc. So I would say um, either through my personal LinkedIn or Twitter accounts, which are you can find through just Terry uh, Sidoric, or even through Kaordix's uh, LinkedIn and Twitter accounts as well. So that's an easy way for someone to, to kind of find me. I'm also a part of the A100 locally here in Alberta. And so, uh, you know, that's another network of individuals that uh, are eager to help and support early stage entrepreneurs. And so myself and others uh, are part of that group because we want to give back to, to the community. And so, you know, whether it's me or others that might have more relevant experience, that'd be a great place to go as well. Uh, well, Terry, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Uh, I usually like to end the interview with uh, the guest posing a question to the audience or even the quote or a story. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, this kind of ties back to what what um, we were talking about earlier is that, you know, the, the one thing I've learned through my journey is that uh, everyone has an opinion. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've got my own opinions. And, uh, you know, I feel that I'm, I'm conscious and empathetic towards someone when, when providing my views and inputs. But ultimately, um, you know, there's a, a, a group of people that will, will have a, a, an opinion. And, and I ran across recently... Um, within the last couple of years, a, a quote that um, um, Brené Brown has used, and I think she got it from, um, is it Abe Lincoln or somebody, that, you know, uh, I think is really relevant. Its bottom line is this, you know, if you're not in the arena, also getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. And so <laughs> to me, that is just so pertinent to uh, the journey and life of an entrepreneur is that again, like, you know, there are so many subtleties that affect why I do what I do. And so for you to stand on the outside and offer opinion of what I should be doing differently or where I'm wrong, I think is kind of something that most people um, don't really appreciate. It's a tough battle. And so if you're not in it with me, you know, as I say, getting your ass kicked or as Brene Brown says, um, you know, quite frankly, I'm not interested in your feedback. And I, I love that. Quote.